Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of the sermon today, The Incomparable Christ. Incomparable, without equal, beyond compare, without parallel, matchless, peerless, inimitable, transcendent, paramount, unrivaled, unsurpassable, and sui generis of his own kind, utterly unique. There has never been and never will be another like Jesus Christ. As we move into this Christmas season, I thought it would be good to take a little break from 1 John to focus on the identity of this incomparable one, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Of all the places that we could look in Scripture to tell us about Jesus, there may be no more beautiful passage and powerful passage than that found in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews has some of the most compelling language about the person and work of Christ to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Many scholars, for example, will point out that our understanding of the priesthood of Christ would be incomplete without the book of Hebrews. A titanic mind like the Puritan Oxford pastor John Owen would spend seven volumes and thousands of pages writing about these 13 chapters. Today we're barely going to scratch the surface of this text, otherwise we would be here well past dinner tonight. I pray this morning that through our consideration of the text that you will see Christ, that you will have a renewed vision and a renewed love for Him and a desire to serve Him much like what we just sang about. Now let us take and read God's Word. We'll focus mostly in the first four verses, but I want us to read this entire first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, I'll give you a moment to get there if you have your Bibles. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship Him. 
of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let us be thankful for God speaking to us this great word. And let us pray. Most Heavenly Father, be with the words of my lips this morning that I would say the things that you would desire your people to hear. Be with your people this morning that only that which is from you is heard. Bless this time together that we gather around your word and feast on your word for it is life to us. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Where does one begin with such an incredible passage? One could start by pointing out the brilliance and style, grammar, and content that one finds in the original Greek text. The first four verses, for example, are one sentence, one beautiful sentence in Greek. The first verse also contains an alliteration of five words, the five key words of the first verse that begin all with the letter P in Greek. We could start there. Some of what is in the Greek is so beautiful and hard to capture in an English translation, and we'll try to delve into that. We could start there, or we could start by looking at how verse 3 encapsulates the theology that Jesus Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We could consider the history of the book of Hebrews and its canonicity. Why is it in the Bible? How did it get here? But today I want us to look at four Ps. Sorry, this is not a three-point good Presbyterian sermon. It'll be four points. That means I get an extra 15 minutes, right? <laughs> Just kidding. So these four Ps that we'll focus on are the person, purpose, power, and prestige of the Son. In other words, Jesus' identity, who He is, His person, what did He come to do? What was His task, His purpose, and His powers? Jesus had unique abilities, I should say has unique abilities, unlike any other and we will also see in this passage his prestige or the honor that is his alone. Each of these four P's is mixed throughout this passage, and some are there multiple times. So I'll try to point them out 
as we go. But before we get into that, we have to deal with verse 1, which tells us that God spoke, past tense, many times and in many ways to His people. This should already draw us into wonder and amazement. God spoke, and He chose to speak to us, to His people. God desired to communicate and have relationship with His people, even from the beginning. And consider human history for a moment. Very shortly after the creation of man and woman, our forefathers, our parents, fell into sin. And God chose not to ignore us. God chose immediately to begin speaking words of grace and also words of punishment that were to our parents good. But God has spoken throughout the Old Testament. In various ways, God spoke through visions, through dreams, through angelic messages, theophanies, burning shrubbery, and so on. But in these last days, God has chosen another way to speak. Think about the words of 2 Peter in chapter 1. The words of God, he says, There is no prophecy of Scripture that comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by His Spirit. In other words, God inspired and spoke to his prophets, and they in turn then delivered either verbally or in writing, in some cases, God's message to his people. The prophecies and words of the Old Testament are in fact the very word of God and completely trustworthy. God used these various mediators, these prophets, to produce his word but he is ultimately standing behind the authors of that text by his Spirit guiding his revelation to us. This should fill our hearts this morning with joy. Not only that God's word comes through his chosen mediators and is trustworthy, but frankly, again, I say that God would speak to us at all. We can read and marvel in the Old Testament as God works out the history of redemption through shadow and type and leading up to this point where verse 1 is going to show that finally, in these last days, God has spoken by a prophet, His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's our first P, that Jesus, the Christ, is the prophet of God. That's who he is. That's what he does. At the beginning of verse 2, we need to notice a few things. First, the phrase in passing, but in these last days, this causes some confusion today. This phrase is intentional, and it refers to the period in which Christ was born up until the second coming. That is the end or the last days. In other words, this phrase that is found throughout the New Testament does not simply refer to the time right before the return of Christ. But the reality is that when Christ ascended into heaven, His return has been imminent ever since. In other words, like that thief in the night that Jesus speaks of, 
His return for the last 2,000 years is but a breath away. Now, as no one knows the day or the hour except the Father, we're not going to speculate. But the last days is this period of time from the incarnation in which we are currently living as well all the way until when Christ comes to consummate His kingdom. It is in this period that Jesus, as a prophet, speaks to us that He's the Son of God. God sent His Son to speak. God saved His message of the greatest grace, glory, and preeminent truth to come personally through His Son. The Son, who is called the Word of God in many other parts of the Scripture, is that final revelation of God to His people. The final climactic revelation did not come through some miraculous event of earthquakes, floods, but it came through a person, the Son of God. The one who speaks to us is the one whose person manifests God's nature, God's name, and God's word. I'm reminded at this moment of the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21. Following Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, his cleansing of the temple, and his being challenged by the Jewish leaders in the temple, Jesus tells this parable. He says, There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, <coughs> and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. This passage says much about Jesus' rejection of the Jewish people of his day who would not believe and there is much that could be said about this parable in that regard. However, today I want us to at least see this connection that God had spoken through His servants at various times who were killed, who were ignored, who were imprisoned, who were beaten. And now God sent His Son to that vineyard. God's word to His people, God's final appeal, the climax of God speaking to His people through the sun, the Lord of the vineyard had exhausted his pleas and finally sent his son, the final and highest messenger, messenger of God conceivable. I'll add this short and sober application. 
I hope we see the wicked tenant's response and we choose not to follow in their footsteps. May we hear the Son, the heir of God's kingdom, and trust Him at His word. At this point, Hebrews begins to move into verse 2 and the identity of the Son, the person. As we move further on, we see that this great prophet is also appointed heir of all things, paralleling what we just read in Matthew 21. This person delivering God's ultimate revelation of himself is the inheritor, or if you like, the beneficiary of everything that is God's. God the Father has given everything to the Son. This Son is elsewhere in Scripture rightly pronounced the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As we read further into verse 2, we see the power of the Son exhibited. The Son was the one through whom the Father created the world. If we're students of the Scripture, this shouldn't surprise us that the Father created through the Son. If we look to John and his gospel in chapter 1 of that gospel, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Later in chapter 1, John says this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word that dwelt among us and created all things is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I would argue that verse 3 is the climax of this opening passage. And it's here we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as prophet, priest, and king. Or if you like, we see once again his person and his purpose, and we'll add to that his power and prestige. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word or the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This verse gets me really excited. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the radiance, the effulgence of the radiance of God himself. Luther translated the word radiance with the word abglanz in his German translation of the Bible. It roughly means reflection, that God is reflected perfectly in Jesus Christ. The Greek text speaks of this almost as if it's rays being shot out, that the effulgence, the rays of the glory of God exude outward and show forth Jesus Christ. Jesus, that perfect imagio dei, the image of God, the exact representation of God, B.B. Warfield put it this way, the thought of the writer seems to be fixed on these Old Testament passages in which Jehovah is described as the glory. In Zechariah 2.5, for I saith Jehovah, 
will be unto her, that is Israel, a wall of fire around and about, and I will be the glory in the midst of her. Warfield continues, in the Lord Jesus Christ we see the fulfillment of these promises. He is Jehovah come to be with his people, and as he has tabernacled among them where they have seen his glory, he is in a word, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God manifested to man. In verse 3 again, I draw your attention to this phrase, the exact imprint of his nature. In the original Greek, it's like someone is tracing, uh, maybe a metal worker making an exact representation of an original. But this is no forgery. This is an exact replication of God. Again, I look at Luther's German translation, thus eben bild seines Wesens, the likeness or picture of God, as Luther says, that Jesus is a picture of God's essence, who God is, his nature, and all that God is, is pictured and represented to us in Jesus Christ, the Son How much is Jesus like the Father? Jesus put it this way. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And later on in the Gospel of John, he says, I and the Father are one. It amazes me today that there are still so-called Bible scholars that believe that Jesus never said he was the Son of God. Or that the New Testament doesn't clearly proclaim that Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity. It's all over the pages of Scripture. As clearly as it already seems from what Jesus has said and what we've already looked at, I draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 1 again, but look at verse 8. This is where it becomes crystal clear. All of these quotations... Uh, from the Old Testament here in Hebrews are either from the Song of Moses or one of the Psalms. And God is speaking, the Father is speaking to the Son in verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is the one eternal God ascribing His very own character to the Son. Nothing higher can be said. Your throne, O God, the word that we use there is the same as the Old Testament Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is saying to the Son, your throne, O Yahweh, O God, is forever and ever. The Father is ascribing to the Son not only creatorship and lordship, but He's saying the Son is the covenant-keeping God. Jesus is the divine radiance of the glory of, the, of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He is Yahweh come in the flesh. As we press on in verse 3, we are reminded that the Son upholds the universe by the word of His power. Two things here come to mind. First, the power of God's Word. It is powerful in sustaining the whole world. 
This word created the heavens and the earth in Genesis. God spoke into the abyss, into the void, and whatever God commanded by his word happened. That same word sustains and preserves the universe at this present moment. This is the same word that sinners hear in the gospel that creates that heart of flesh out of a heart of stone and makes men and women willing to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. That word of regeneration and rebirth, that word that calls people by the Spirit to God's marvelous light to recognize Jesus as that radiance and glory of God and the only Savior. This word in all its power, as beautiful as it is in its creating and recreating work, is also terrifying. I'll point out in Revelation 19 a vision that John had of the end of days, the real end end. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That life-giving word from Christ in the final judgment will be the sword from his mouth to strike down all of his and his people's enemies. His word this morning either brings judgment upon us or it brings peace. I pray this morning that you would be filled with the peace of knowing Christ and knowing his word, but be warned that we will either be judged by his word or we will find solace and life in his word. We see the power of that word, but secondly, it is through this word that God, the Son, is providentially sustaining the world. God is not impersonal. He is not the God of the deist who sets up a watch and then goes away. He is providentially upholding and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. Paul would state it like this in Colossians 1. He, that is the Son, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things are dependent upon Christ. They are dependent upon Him for their present and continued existence at every moment. All things hold together in Him. It is at this point where the person, power, purpose of God comes together. While holding all things together in Christ, Christ then, according to Hebrews, made purification 
for sin, for sins, plural, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the merging of human history, so to speak, with God's redemptive history, where Jesus, hanging on the cross, offers himself up both as the sacrifice and the priest offering the sacrifice. Even in that moment, he is still sustaining the world. As Athanasius would argue, there was never a time when the Son was not, and there was never a time when the Son was not the divine second person of the Trinity. For a short while in his earthly sojourn, Christ became a little lower than the angels. He took on human flesh. As our creed says, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried. He was truly human. He was made human, a little lower than the angels. However, he was always and forever fully God. Rather than becoming less than God, an actual impossibility, he remained, remained God and made that purification for sins. He became low. He condescended so that we might be able to draw near to him, so that we might become his adopted children. That's why in verse 4 we read, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus did condescend. Jesus did take on a real human nature, but he is superior to the angels because the name he has inherited is Yahweh, the God of the universe, the one God, it is this one God of the universe that is then enthroned on high. It is the only begotten Son of the Father who is ascended and reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He lives to make intercession for us, as the book of Hebrews will later tell us. It is from that throne that He still providentially cares for and nurtures us. This is a divine mystery, the Trinity, that words cannot grasp there's no way to fully probe this but god has revealed it to us and we should be in awe that god speaks to us and he speaks in a way that we can grapple with this truth and we can worship and wonder at our god who is too big to be put into words in the early church there was a heretic by the name of nestorius he came along and tried to separate Jesus' divine and human natures, in effect making Jesus a little lower in essence than the Father. Cyril, an early church father, wrote this inspiring passage against Nestorius. And I find this incredibly enriching. The eternal word subjected himself to birth for us. And came forth man from a woman without casting off that which he was, that is divine. But although he assumed flesh and blood, he remained what he was, God in essence and in truth. Neither do we say that his flesh was changed into the nature of divinity, 
nor that the ineffable nature of the word of God was laid aside from the nature of flesh. For he is unchanged and absolutely unchangeable, being the same always, according to the scriptures. For although visible and a child in swaddling clothes, and even in the bosom of his virgin mother, he filled all creation as God and was a fellow ruler with him who begat him, for the Godhead is without quantity and dimension and cannot have limits. Isn't that what we've been singing about already this morning? When we look to that baby in a manger, when we hear one more retelling of the Christmas story, remember, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life around He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. What an incredible Christological Trinitarian hymn about the deity of Christ and his person, purpose, power, work, and prestige. That baby in the manger came to save his people from their sins and give us new and second birth. In his person he showed himself to be God. He is the one of whom God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And Jesus, Jesus alone, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. His purpose, a prophet, and one who would make a purification for sin. His power in upholding the universe and in creating all that there is by the power of His word. And in prestige and honor, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Remember that this Christmas. That baby in a manger is the veiled flesh of the Godhead. Amen.